Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Thursday, October 24th, 2019. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, uh, I've been firmly planted here in North Carolina lately, but I understand you've been traveling around a lot, and uh, one of the places I'm super jelly that you got to go to is Apple's new flagship. Tell, Tell us all about that experience. Uh, sure, Scott. So the this is the Fifth Avenue um, Apple Store in New York City. So this was one of the first kind of um, architecturally distinct stores that Apple opened. Uh, and I, 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 w- I should remember what year it opened, but I don't. Um, so it, it was called The Cube. So, uh, you know, it, it was an underground store, but above the ground, they built this giant glass cube. Uh, with a, a floating Apple logo in it, and you you kind of walk in, and you either take a glass elevator or walk down this glass stairway into this underground store. And the store has been closed for uh, probably a year while they were remodeling it, and they opened it uh, just in time for the iPhone 11 launch. So I, I wasn't there on launch day, but I, I uh, was there the next week and got a chance to check it out. Very cool. Does it have that, um, what do they call it, town hall kind of vibe with like the big wall and all? Yeah, it does. Uh, it it um, is their new uh, format, the sort of city format. Um, so it has live trees in it. Um, it has a big auditorium where they have a lot of um, educational content. Uh, this was already a quite large store and they, it dramatically expanded in size. Um, so it's it's a very big store. Uh, one of the, you know, the old one was underground and it was all artificial lighting. One of the things they did this time is they installed a bunch of uh, fancy skylights. So um, there are, you know, skylights throughout the roof and they all have light meters on them. So the ambient light in the store uh, adjusts to how bright the skylights are. So when it's bright outside, the store is almost, you know, fully sunlit. Um but at night or on on uh, overcast days, there's more ambient lighting in the store, so it's sort of a clever, fancy system. Uh, I chuckle a little bit because the um, this was the first store to have the glass staircase, and that that's become a signature item for Apple. And in this store, it was quite um, controversial. the The staircase is super expensive to build, and they. Uh, a couple years after they opened it, they had to remodel it and they upgraded the staircase. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, but at the time, like the vendor took out the old staircase and threw the stairs away in dumpsters outside of the store. And uh, entrepreneurial Apple fans went dumpster diving, collected these these individual stairs from the st- glass stairs and sold them on eBay for quite a lot of money. And Apple, Dang, how did I miss that? I'm, yeah, I'm up for a good dumpster dive to make some money. Uh, Apple was really well. I'm glad you didn't because Apple was really pissed, um, oh, okay. and they they like sued everyone that had one and tried to get them back, and they like famously fired the vendor that did the work, um, and you know it, it became this big brand thing that Apple didn't want these like this old remnant from their store out on the market. So they, it felt like a ginormous overreaction to, a, uh, you know, some fans like, like loving the nostalgia of Apple. Um, but I will say it rains and snows a lot in New York and it was super impractical. Like all these people with wet uh, shoes walk into this super slippery glass stairwell. And, uh, the first thing Apple had to do, like the first week they opened the store is they had to hire a full-time guy with a mop just to be, like constantly cleaning the stairwell. And over time, what they ba- they did is they threw in the towel and they, they had like rubber covers that they would have over the glass stairwell for, you know, the winter season. Uh, and so when I went back, the first thing I was interested in is what do they do with the stairwell? And they totally gave up on the glass stairwell and it's now metal steps with like 
like uh, traction on it and stuff. And I, uh, I imagine to myself that that was a, a, val- a piece of value engineering that they could only do after Steve Jobs had passed because I, d- I don't think he would have ever accepted that. How pedestrian metal stairs. Ugh, I yeah. would never go in that store. Yeah, still looks cool. Um, the store is beautiful. Uh, but I would not say it like moves the ball forward in any meaningful way. Like it, it uses all of the the traditional Apple gestures. It feels very much like any of their other more modern flagship stores. And it's, it's quite big, but there's nothing that you could get at that store that you can't get at dozens of other Apple stores and bigger equals more of the same stuff, not necessarily new stuff. Um, So in general, like based on the amount of hype they had around this store, I would call it slightly overwhelming. It's a perfectly fine store. There's nothing wrong with it, but, um, it wasn't as, I don't know, evolutionary over previous stores as I had hoped. Um, you mean underwhelming? You said overwhelming. Oh, gosh, yes. I apologize. I exactly meant underwhelming. Um, one kind of cool thing, uh, you know, because some of the the new products, uh, the, the um, what's it called? The HomePod is meant to be a sort of an audiophile caliber product. Like they do now have like a, like a faux living room and an an enclosed listening space where you can kind of walk into a a little living room with a leather couch. Um, it's a little reminiscent of these um, Magnavox ads from the eighties, uh, and uh, you know, listen to the AirPod in a in an enclosed room instead of just on one of their wooden tables. Uh, and there's a secret cool. exit, I guess, is the other interesting thing now. So if you don't, a, what? a secret Second exit. exit. Yeah. So if you you know, there's the tourist entrance, which is this stairwell, and there often is a line to get like down the stairs and, and into the store. And it, it's cool, but it's kind of inconvenient. Um, and so they now have a like a kind of a discrete stairwell and a side entrance that you can like if you're a local and you needed to grab something, you could pop in and out without going through the tourist entrance. So that's cool. my my scoop on Apple uh, Fifth Avenue. Any other trip reports to to of what you've seen out there? Um, well, so on that trip, I visited some other New York retail. Uh, we've talked about the Nike House of Innovation um, store before, and I, I wanted to go back because I'd been there during the grand opening. Um, and to their credit, they've done a month, they've continued to evolve that store, and they actually had a pretty cool exhibit on the ground floor. So. Um, they have a, a new like cushioning technology that they're promoting that uses thousands of little beads in the shoes. And uh, so they they built kind of like, uh, I don't know what the best way to call it, like almost like like one of those ping pong ball pits that you that, you know, kids would play in. Um, they built a giant caged pit where the entire floor is this cushioning technology. And then they figured out a way to project a digital image on the entire floor. Um, so they have things like, you know, like a, a, a fake uh, colored balls thing where you can run around and kick balls around and try to pop balls. They're all virtual balls. Um, but it, it causes you to jump up and down on this floor a lot. And you can, you know, have all these like different sort of Instagrammable physical moments um, and, you know, people were in New York were in line to sort of get their picture taken in this like kind of cool novel uh, digital physical experience. And uh, in the way you got in line is you had to be a Nike Plus member and be running the app in the store and only then could you get in the queue. So I thought that was kind of a, a clever experiential element um, to add to the to the Nike store. And, and Nike's leaning heavily into forcing you to be a Nike plus member and having a lot of self-service mobile experiences in the store. So this, this kind of perfectly played into all of those themes. Very cool. Well, this episode of the Jason and Scott show, aside from the the trip reports is really focused on, we're going to do some non Amazon news. So, uh, you know, we're, um, we, we have been covering Amazon a lot here lately, so we wanted to catch up on some non-Amazon news. But then we've also had a fair number of listener questions kind of teed up um, out on our Facebook page where we've had a pretty good discussion going. Uh, so, Jason, why don't you kick us off on the news side? Yeah. Uh, so the first news item uh, I was sort of saving for uh, our holiday show 
But I, uh, it's already starting to come up a few times, so I thought I would uh, that we needed to briefly mention it here. Um, the way the calendar works this year, Thanksgiving uh, falls on the latest calendar day it possibly could, which means there are six fewer days between Thanksgiving and Christmas um, than there were last year. And the reason I bring this up is a lot of retailers are going to tell you, you know, that if their their sales are soft at all, it was because they had fewer selling days to sell this year. And it already came up in the Amazon earnings call, um, which was today. Uh, and a couple of other retailers have already issued cautionary tales that they have six less selling days. Um, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more in a, in a holiday focus show. Uh, but what our listeners should know is that there's no science to the fact that when there's fewer days between Thanksgiving and Christmas, that consumers spend less for holiday. Um, so like back in the 1950s, holiday shopping started on Thanksgiving and went through Christmas. Uh, but for the last several decades, holiday sh- uh, shopping has started in, no- in the very beginning of November and went through Christmas. Um, and there are still the same 61 days between November 1st and Chris and, uh, uh, the uh, uh, New Year's that, that there have always been. Um, and so like what tends to happen is when there are fewer days between Thanksgiving and Christmas, uh, purchases get compressed more and there there's less of a lull in, in shopping between the uh, Thanksgiving holiday and the Christmas cutoff. But uh, I just want to uh, sort of pre-plant uh, listeners because we're already starting to see articles um, that almost all of the retail data supports the fact that the number of days between Thanksgiving and Christmas doesn't have a material impact on uh, holiday sales. So uh, when you hear that, be skeptical. It's a little like when retailers blame the weather. So you just took away everyone's excuse for a bad holiday. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry about that. But uh, I, like, I feel like there should not be an excuse. Like everyone should have a good holiday. Uh unless something wacky happens with tariffs between now and then, uh, which seems unlikely. Uh, so more newsy. So now I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, more newsy stuff. Uh, this week there was a new launch of a, of a very boringly named product called uh, the EMV SRC. Um, and uh, EMV is the name of a joint venture that uh, MasterCard, Visa, Discover Card, Diners Club, um, and a couple other companies started. So it's a joint venture of all the credit card companies and SRD stands for secure retail checkout. Um, so they launched a new product this week and, um, longtime listeners will remember that most of the credit card companies tried to launch their own checkout services. So there was a thing called checkout by visa. There was mastercard checkout. And these guys all wanted their own button on your e-commerce checkout page to have a alternative checkout flow, that was provided by the credit card company and they wanted to store your credit card instead of having the, the retailer store the credit card. And they all have kind of, you know, uh, let those products die. They were never very successful. Customers never adopted them. And so they have now launched a new initiative, which has the same, same sort of goals, but it's not branded for an individual credit card. It's, it's branded as uh, click and buy. Um, and it, uh, you know, and it, it obviously works with any of the, the credit cards. And so it's an alternative checkout flow that's really designed to compete with PayPal. And so they, they announced their first three retailers had, had launched. And I think those retailers are, uh, uh, Rakuten, um, uh, Movember, which is a donation site for a, a charity. And, um, uh, one of the movie theaters uh, had launched. And so this is like, in theory, uh, an easier, faster, more secure way for, for customers to check out. And if you store your credit card in it on one site, then you could use that stored credit card on any other site that use this flow. And they've, so they've made the flow available for free and it's open sourced. And I think it's kind of lame. It was, was a big setup for it being lame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, so it's a step in the right direction. Like it wait, makes way more sense that they have have a joint product than that they each try to have their own product. I used to call that NASCARing the checkout where, you know, all these different companies wanted to put their logo on your checkout. Um, so now, you know, it's consolidated down to one. 
there absolutely is a customer benefit. Like if you, you know, the customer would love to be able to store their payment information in one secure place and then be able to use it in any of the places they shop. So if a bunch of retailers all adopted this checkout flow, it would save customers time because they could go to a new retailer that they had never shopped at before and still not have to type their their shipping address and payment information because it would be stored in the, the EMV SRC. Um, so that makes sense. And I, I think it's a smart play for, for uh, the companies to consolidate. Uh, but here's my problem. The, the people that should be the best in the world at a checkout form should be the credit card companies. And they should you know, follow all the best practices and make it as low friction as possible. And their flow isn't that great. Like it's very kind of a pedestrian uh, middle of the road checkout with a lot of practices that we now know aren't the best. Um, They make you type every individual field for address. And, you know, we know it works way better to have a a single field and and use like a a maps API to do a auto suggest. Um, You know, it just, it's surprising they didn't have a great checkout flow. And then like uh, PayPal, they make it kind of redundant. So the way that these first retailers implemented it, you actually have to type your shipping address before you select your payment method. So, you know, half the benefit of this service should be that you don't have to type your shipping address. Um, but the retailers are making you type your shipping address before you get to this payment method. So to me, that, that was just kind of disappointing. Absolutely. Um, so we'll see, we'll see if it gets some adoption or if they do a gen two and try to, you know, uh, I'm sure they're all listening to this and, and uh, you know, we'll take my advice, um, which I will happily give them for free. Uh, so a couple other little news tidbits uh, that I promise will be shorter. Um, Best Buy has, has announced that they're moving to one day uh, delivery for e-commerce. So, you know, uh, obviously Amazon, you know, uh, sent big ripples in the industry by doing one day delivery and Walmart quickly announced they would match and target matches by using uh, store delivery. And so now, you know, we see another big player, Best Buy, feeling like they're forced to go to one day delivery, which I'm sure is going to be a very expensive thing for Best Buy to implement. Uh, so that's interesting seeing seeing more retailers follow suit there. Uh, today is actually a big day in New York retail. Uh, there, there, a Nordstrom store has been, a flagship store has been planned there for a couple of years and it just opened today. So uh, Nordstrom opened a men's store uh, a little over a year ago in New York, and now they have a, a you know, a, like one of the best examples of their their uh, women's store available in New York City. And I know the the New York uh, retail trade press was uh, uh, all uh, shopping that store today, and all had uh, very favorable comments about the first day. Cool. I uh, I saw an article that said. Um, you know, Nordstrom is doing all this stuff to improve the brand and, and uh, Wall Street's just kind of yawning. I think the stock's been down about 25% year to date. So, uh, you know, what, what, whatever they're doing hasn't kind of seemed to get traction yet. Yeah. I mean, like for a while, the the growth had been in the discount stores, which for Nordstrom is Nordstrom Rack. Um, and the mainline stores had been lagging and that, you know, they finally had to concede that they the discount stores were cannibalizing the mainline stores. Um and, uh, you know, opening one new store isn't likely to really move the needle. Um, and this is like, I, by all accounts, this is a great store. It's a risky store because like the most retail saturated market in the world for sort of luxury department stores is New York City. And, you know, the most of their competitors have a much longer um, relationship with with the New York shopper. So. Um, for, for local New Yorkers, it's going to be interesting to see whether, whether Nordstrom is able to entice them. Um, obviously a lot of shopping in New York happens from tourists and Nordstrom has a good brand. So, uh, I, I by no means think it's, it's not going to work, but I, I kind of think, uh, this could be become Nordstrom's best store and it still isn't going to be, you know, a huge economic windfall, uh, you know, happy story and the, uh, stock goes through the roof. Uh, but diametrically opposed, one of those historic New York department store brands, uh, Barney's, has been in bankruptcy for a while. And we we're all waiting to see if they were going to uh, 
uh, be able to uh, emerge from bankruptcy with some sort of restructuring or they were going to liquidate or what the story was. Um, you know, Barney's is a strong uh, luxury department store brand in New York. Like they're, you know, heavily fe- uh, uh, featured in the the Sex in the City TV show. Um, and, uh, you know, so a lot of New Yorkers had a strong affinity for the brand. Um, and they announced today that they are not going to be able to restructure. Uh, so they they sold all the assets to a, a company called Authentic Brand Group, which is uh, we often call ABG. Um, and ABG is a holding company that owns the licenses to a bunch of mostly failed retailers. So it's like the Nine West and Nautica and Fredericks of the Hollywood. And they license out the 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 intellectual property for these these brands to operators that want to run stores. And so uh, they, it seems like the intention is to close all the Barney stores except one in Boston, and they have already announced that they have a customer that they're going to license the brand asset to, and that customer is Hudson Bay Company, which owns Saks Fifth Avenue. So, you know, Saks and Barney's would have been, you know, direct bitter competitors for a long time. And, uh, you know, it, it's not clear how they're going to use it yet, but like in some way, Saks Fifth Avenue is going to uh, try to leverage the Barney's brand, which is uh, interesting, but almost certainly bad news for all the the employees working in the in the Barney stores and, you know, pe- people that like had a particular affinity for the Barney's experience. How many Barney stores are there again? Yes, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Um <laughs> And uh, I have an uncanny scent. We'll, we'll get one of our interns to work on it while I'm yeah. talking in a minute. If, if we ever had like uh, notes or uh, or like rehearsals or something like that, would be super helpful. Um, I, it's we do 10. rehearse every wanna, show three from, times, so I don't don't get listeners confused by, by yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't make it seem like we don't prepare for this thing. Got you. In my head, I want to say it's seven stores, so it's it's not a huge number of stores. Um, the and a, a few of them uh, ended up being in sort of wackadoodle places. Like they opened a weird uh, Las Vegas store. Um, they're pretty big. Yeah. Oh, they're big, beautiful stores. They're like Macy's size in my brain. Yeah. Um, but they, they were like, square feet? Uh, no, I think they're like considerably larger, like 230,000 square feet. Woo. This could, uh, this will be good for Mulligan. Uh, or bad, depending on your perspective. <laughs> yeah, so I think they are like they are an anchor in a couple of malls, but they're less like some. You know, the the Manhattan stores were mostly freestanding stores. Um, their first non-Manhattan store was like a Chicago store from the '90s. Uh, I think they have a good store in Beverly Hills. Um, they actually, <laughs> there's to me a doomed mall trying to uh, open in New Jersey uh, that's called American Dream. Um, and it's it's owned by the same people that own Mall of America, and they've been trying to open this mall for like twenty years, and it's supposedly going to partially open this month. Um, but guess who the the tenant retail anchor was supposed to be in that mall? Mm, Barney's. You got it. So that store is obviously not happening. Um, so that's a yet another setback for uh, for those guys. I'm certainly not rooting against them, but it just seems like a a, a little bit of a wackadoodle concept in the current market. Um, but so definitely, you know, sad to, to see, uh, Barney's go. It'll be interesting to see what Saks, uh, does with the brand. Um, you know, Saks is on a kind of turnaround of their own trying to, uh, change their fortune. So, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of evidence that, uh, um, one strategy that does not work is to take two distressed brands and add them together. Um, so Kmart, Plus Sears was not significantly stronger than Sears alone. Um, so we'll, we'll see if, if uh, Saks and Barney's have a different approach. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't sound terribly promising. I'm super negative on these news items today. I should have found some happier news. You are grumpy, Jason. We got grumpy, Jason. tonight. Yeah. Also, it's not a good week to be a retail or a brand CEO. It seems like they're all losing their jobs. Yeah. And it's not entirely clear. So, um, an interesting one is both the Nike and Under Armour CEOs have switched over. Same day. Um, Nike. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, 
it's not entirely clear what's going on. A lot of them cite, you know, kind of standard, just want to spend more time with family and all. There's there's a lot of rumors that there's a lot of Me Too kind of stuff happening out there that, um, you know, that this is one reaction to that. I have no idea if that's true or not. Um, uh, eBay's CEO left in September. That was kind of one of the first ones. And he just had a disagreement with the board. The board uh, wants him to start kind of dismantling eBay. And I think he wants all the parts to stay together. So they, they, the, the CFO took over there. Uh, but I mentioned eBay because the new CEO of Nike is John Donahue, who was the previous to Devin Winding's CEO of eBay. Um, and it was interesting. He went from eBay to a SaaS software business called ServiceNow, and now he's running Nike. Um, the His CFO is currently running Intel. Uh, Under Armour, I think uh, a president of the U.S. took over Under yeah. Armour. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. Yeah, internal promotion. What's a little interesting there, like I think you're right on Nike. Uh, so a, Nike had phenomenal economic performance, and Nike revenue probably doubled during Mark Mike, uh, Parker's uh, reign at Nike. So... Um, that one didn't feel like financial performance related. And there was a lot of controversies around um, like there not being a lot of gender diversity in the senior management team at Nike and uh, um, you know, some, some like, you know, not very good policies for treating female athletes at Nike. Um, And so I I don't know if the cumulative effect of all of that was the deal or if he, you know, just chose to leave. Like, you know, I I haven't heard any strong rumors on Nike, but it almost certainly wasn't financial performance in Nike's case because they were, you know, they're frankly uh, doing really well. Uh, Under Armour has struggled more. And what's interesting there is like the biggest struggle for Under Armour has been the North American market. And so, you know, now the the founder, Kevin Plank, steps down. I, I think he's still the chairman of the board, uh, but he stepped down from the day to day. And the guy they promote is the president of North America, which is the market that that has been struggling. So, uh uh, a little interesting, if nothing else. Cool. So uh, that wraps up the news portion. Oh, uh, there was one thing I wanted to mention in news. Um, so I think one of the most underreported and discussed in the industry marketplaces that I'm excited about uh, is uh, the Google Marketplace. Now, they don't call it that, and I think that's part of the problem. The The, the way they articulate this to sellers, what I would call sellers or merchants, is they call it Google Shopping Actions, which is a terrible name. Um, and then for consumers, you you can see it called Buy on Google. This has been around for um, about two years, if, if I recall, and um, it's been on this kind of slow boil. And what's the reason I mentioned it in the news section is uh, here today, right before we got on, um, I got a email from Google Shopping saying, hey, we're having a flash sale. And I was like, you can't have a flash sale. You're a comparison shopping engine. But I looked and what they've done is they've gone to all the the sellers that are in the buy on Google program. Um, and first of all, they've upgraded the program where I was able to use it on my iPhone and, and my Apple browser um, on my desktop. And so it's, so it's much easier to use than it, than it has been in previous iterations where it was kind of Android only and tapped into kind of like the Google play um, uh, permissions and, and, and payment methods that you have set up. Um, so it's a really good experience. So we'll put a link in the show notes to this flash page. Um, and I was able to get uh, $40 off of a pair of iPods that I've had my eye on kind of the newer generation. I have some older ones. Um, so I was just blown away by the experience. It's got a really nice one page checkout. Uh, the shipping was very Amazon esque and that is snappy. So, you know, there's, there's, we talk a lot on the show about how, Amazon's ads are really threatening Google. Looks like Google's waking up to this, and I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that this mark this kind of buy on Google is a pretty interesting new entrant in the marketplace world. And I would encourage our our folks to you know maybe do some experimenting with that as a holiday item. I think it's relatively easy to turn on if you uh, already have you know if you're doing Google shopping, which pretty much everyone is. So so that's something to that I just thought would be interesting to consider. Yeah, and it correct me if I have this wrong, but in my mind, this is sort of the successor to what used to be called Google Express, right? So there, there's both a delivery service, but there was a, a Google Express shopping portal where they aggregated all the items that were um, 
being sold by Google Express. And now they have this new portal, which is shopping.google.com, which aggregates all the sellers that are uh, using the the um, Google Shopping Actions uh, tools to sell products on their Google platform. Is that – am I thinking about that right? Yeah, so they um... – so they had actions separate, then they kind of had it inside of Express. And then Express kind of as we, as you know, it kind of went away. And now they've kind of gotten rid of that brand as far as I understand. Yep. Um, so they've gone through kind of like four or five iterations here that have been part of the, you know, part of the reason I don't think a lot of people are talking about this is it, it is very confusing. Um, but now, like this one experience I went through was actually really good where I got an email and it said there's a flash sale. The prices were really good. It seemed like Google was supplementing them. It took me to a page that was coherent and really only shop on Google items. The the only other, the other thing I've noticed is you can now, if you do a search result uh, over at Google Shopping, um, I get a an Amazon Prime like filter which says, you know, hey, show me only the buy on Google items um, that are in this marketplace. And what's nice about that is, you, you know, it's got a cart metaphor, so I I don't have to go to six different retailers' websites to buy stuff. And um, and uh, then this flash sale is nice because it also has a bunch of additional discounts. So so I, it feels like they really nailed the user experience. I still think they need to do a lot on the branding, but I think. You know, this is good because I think they foundationally have the right pieces in place to go do some branding that would make sense. Yeah, no. Uh, and it definitely seems like uh, Google is uh, fully committed to figuring shopping out. And it makes sense that they would because obviously, uh, you know, there's a lot of chatter about Amazon stealing ad revenue from Google. And so, you know, if you're if you're Google, it would make sense that you'd want to have a viable shopping experience to try to protect that revenue. Absolutely. Cool. Well, that wraps up our news part of the program, and let's jump into some listener questions. Listener questions. Jason, you know, I, I don't I feel like I've put my thumb on the scale or something, but most of these questions are actually in your realm. So I'm going to, we're almost going to go into an interview style here, uh, which is, you know, we usually like to alternate, but really most of these are in your realm. So um, let's just jump into them and and you're going to be the guy answering most of them. Uh, so the first question comes from longtime listener, frequent guest, Michelle Grant. And she says, Amazon and Walmart have pat both have patents around predictive shipping. Could you speculate on what impact predictive shipping will have on commerce? We mentioned it in episode 187, but she'd like to get more details. Oh, God. Now I have to try to remember what we said in 187 better than Michelle remembers it. And that, like, you, frankly, you said the, you were the world's leading expert on it, if I recall. Yeah. No, uh, I trust Michelle's memory a lot more than I trust mine. <laughs> uh, but uh, for listeners that maybe haven't heard about predictive shipping before, like, super literally, it's this notion of uh, another way to call it would be anticipatory shipping to say like, Hey, using big data and your typical trends, uh, I assume you're about to run out of peanut butter. So I'm going to send you a new jar of peanut butter. And if I'm right and you needed peanut butter, great. You keep the peanut butter and I'll charge your account for it. If I'm wrong, uh, here's some super easy way to return the peanut butter and you won't be charged for it. Um, so uh, it it's a specific version of a broader category of experiences that I'll call auto replenishment, right? And, you know, auto replenishment to me is this notion that today most shopping is very implicit. Like if you need peanut butter, you, you either go online, find the right peanut butter, add it to your cart and buy it, or you drive to a store, find the peanut butter and, and uh, pay for it. But you you had to take a bunch of overt actions to get that peanut butter. And increasingly in the future, there are going to be a lot of products that you're going to get implicitly without having to take all those steps. And so the ways you might get an implicit product are it might be predictively shipped to you, um, which is what Michelle was specifically asking about. Um you might have a webcam in your kitchen that's keeping uh, that's noticing how much you use peanut butter and uh, ordering pe peanut butter for you when you when you need it, kind of like a video version of a uh, Amazon Alexa. Uh, you might have a smart trash can that notices what 
packages you throw away and automatically reorder them. Uh, you might have a fridge that lets you very easily tell it when you use the last of the milk or the eggs or something. Um, and increasingly, you might have a bunch of internet-enabled devices that know when they're out of their consumables, right? So already, you can have a water fil- uh, pitcher that knows when it needs a new filter and orders it. You can have a dishwasher that orders more so- uh, soap when it needs it. Um, and so, you know, there's a for using all of these techniques, the IoT devices, uh, the smart kitchen, and the predictive shipping, uh, there's a significant amount of purchases that, that we have to explicitly do today that will probably happen implicitly in the, the not-too-distant future. Um, and so to, to specifically answer Michelle's question, uh, I, I think the cumulative effect of all of this uh, auto-replenishment can have a, a huge pronounced effect on retail. Uh, so so uh, I've had my team do some sort of uh, studies on, you know, wh- what percentage of products in a typical um, Walmart store, for example, uh, would be suitable for auto replenishment. And, and the answer is it ends up being about 40 percent of the SKUs in a Walmart are things that you could reasonably expect uh, to to be fulfilled via auto replenishment. And so imagine a world, let's call it five years from now, when you never go to the store to get toilet paper or paper towels or peanut butter, because through one mechanism or another, all those things show up when you need them at your house. Uh, Suddenly, the Walmart store is 40% too big. And uh, a bunch of the reasons that you had to go to a store have gone away. So the number of visits that you have to that store have gone away. Um, and the amount of aisles you're going to walk in that store that are you know, potentially going to cause you to serendipitously discover new products and impulse items have gone away. And so the, you know, we, we talk in most markets that like if you can change a market by 10 or 15 percent, that really is an inflection point that can dramatically uh, change the whole market. And so if auto replenishment can get to 40 percent like that, that would be uh, a, a pronounced change in retail. And the the way I like to talk to uh, retailers about it, the way I think about it is, um, you know, I used to spend a lot of time at, at uh, Best Buy. It's a 40,000 square foot store. 10,000 square feet of that store were designed to sell these things that came on plastic circles called music. Um, and people would buy new music uh, in some cases every week. So you might visit a Best Buy store 50 times to buy music, and you probably only shop for a TV every two or three years. But because you'd come to that store every week, you'd have to walk by the TVs, and when you're ready to buy a TV, you'd most likely buy it from Best Buy. So what happens in a world when no one buys plastic circles anymore and you all download your music on Spotify? Suddenly the 40,000-square-foot Best Buy store is 10,000 square feet too big and has a huge economic problem. And in Best Buy's case, they they really struggled with what to do uh, with that gap that was both the traffic driver and you know a significant uh, square footage in their store. They tried a bunch of things. Today what they mostly do is outsource that space. They sublease that space. So Apple buys some of that space. Samsung buys some of that space. Microsoft buys some of that space. And they sort of have a bazaar of of, uh, brand-funded displays that have taken up that space. Um, And they've done some different things to replace the traffic. They've they've launched services. They're now leaning into health, uh, smart home, all these different things. But none of the things were completely successful at replacing the traffic that that CDs once gave to Best Buy. And, you know, it's very possible that uh, grocery stores and, uh, you know, uh, major uh, mass merchants will go through this same same quagmire where where they'll have to figure out, you know, changes to their business model to accommodate the fact that there are certain kind of products that we're just not likely to explicitly shop for at some point in the future. Do you buy my version of the future at all? I do. The, um, you know, the thing I would add, and you, you do a, um, I forget which talk you do where you talk about this, where, you know, when, when you describe it, people may be saying, you know, that's really weird. Like stuff I haven't ordered shows up in my house. That's weird. But 
what I think happens is we're already loosening up to that a little bit. And you use the example of, you know, uh, 10 years ago, people would say, never get in a car with a stranger. Now we press a button on our phone and do it all the time with ride sharing apps and don't think twice about it. And, you know, people put all their food on Instagram and stuff. I think consumer behavior changes faster than I think we give it credit for. And I would use the example of Stitch Fix, right? So there's, there's millions of subscribers to Stitch Fix that are used to this cycle of, I get a box of stuff and I return a pretty good chunk of it and I keep some of it. Um, and I think that's the kind of the format it would take is, you know, imagine you get, I'll use Amazon because that's my, my, my go-to usually, you know, so imagine you just kind of get this weekly box from Amazon and in there, you, you keep 60, 70% of it. And then Amazon's coming to your house so much in your neighborhood so much, they don't mind picking up a bunch of stuff and taking it back. Um, the convenience factor would outweigh, you wouldn't, you wouldn't really think of it as wasteful. I think a lot of people kind of look at it and they're like, wow, that'd be super wasteful because it's actually more efficient um, to put more stuff in that box. And it's greener if you, if you kind of look at the math of that. And, and Amazon you know, could actually pass a bunch of shipping savings to you as well. Um, one use case I, I didn't hear you say is just kind of the simple one. Um, and I think the Amazon patents kind of simply around uh, one of the patents I saw was around, you know, frequently uh, people in my house on my Amazon account will throw things in the cart and just kind of like leave it there for whatever reason they won't check out. So Amazon could preemptively ship stuff like that too, you know? So, or if you spend a fair amount of time on an item page and the items under, you know, they're, they're not going to do that with a high consideration product like a digital camera but you know let's say you're you're um you know you're looking at a pair of shoes they could go ahead and ship you two or three sizes of that shoe knowing you'll probably take one and you are probably going to do that exact same you know kind of return pattern anyway and if they've shipped that with a bunch of other stuff already on its way it kind of ride along rides along quote unquote for free or for very little so so i think there's there's some you know there's this kind of like science fictiony kind of a thing um, where all the devices are ordering for you but there's kind of some simpler stuff we can do in the interim to get there oh for sure and i would even say like uh so there's lots of signals the retailer can use to inform that prediction and you you know the browsing signals that you mentioned the the stuff left in cart the the actual purchase history um but like let me give you a scenario that's even easier so what happens when Kroger buys a, a popular app for tracking your calories online um and they now know for a big chunk of their customers like what they ate at every meal because you logged your food consumption into your diet app, right? Um, so now Kroger knows not only what you browse for and what you bought, but actually when you consume it. And so they can, you know, super accurately predict when you need more of those items. And it, it you know, it's not black magic or anything. Like there's a legitimate reason that some users would want to tell Kroger when they use those items um, because they got some, some benefit for that. And I guess the one other thing I would uh, throw in there is, Predictive shipping doesn't net automatically mean to your house. So there's a flavor of predictive shipping that, in essence, is already have and happening. Some of the Amazon patents for predictive shipping actually are uh, proposing that they would predictively ship popular items to the basement of your condo building or apartment building, right? So I can predict, like, uh, I can aggregate the predictions for, you know, the 50 people that live in this building, and I can Amazon can lease space in the in the basement of that building and they can stage the stuff that that building's most likely to buy in the basement. So then when they get ordered, the delivery cost is from the basement to the the unit instead of from a fulfillment center to the unit. Right. So um, a flavor of predictive shipping is predictively staging the stuff closer to the consumer. And I would argue Prime now is sort of a version of that already where, you know, they have big fulfillment centers that are several hours from metropolitan areas. And those those fulfillment centers have a million items. And then they take the 60,000 items that they're most likely to sell to that metropolitan area. And they put that in a smaller warehouse that's a 30 minute drive from uh, most of the residents in that city. And, you know, increasingly, they might stage even more popular items more closely to customers to enable the one-day delivery and all these other services. So I, I feel like baby steps in predictive shipping is kind of staging items closer. And I, I do think it's totally realistic that uh, uh, in our lifetime, you know, there's like, it, it just doesn't make sense that you should have to stress about running out of toilet paper. Yes. 
um, it's going to be one thing the e-commerce industry delivers to the world. Cool. Our second question comes from Holly Marie Pfeiffer, and it says, what's the future look like for personalization with ITP cracking down on Safari and talks about Google being close behind in restricting third-party cookies? Yeah. Um, well, so I'm going to have to interpret this question partly because uh, there there was a thing called third-party cookies, and they mostly are already uh, not allowed. Um, so, you know, a cookie is a a little digital footprint that gets left when you visit a website and it can store some data um, that that website uses about you, right? Um, and so for a while, it was possible f- uh, to for uh, when you visit a, a retailer's website, say walmart.com, um, that uh, Walmart could have permission to go look at a cookie that's shared amongst many websites. And that was called the third-party cookie uh, for a variety of security reasons, browsers don't allow that anymore. So Walmart.com can only see cookies that are designed for Walmart.com, and no other website can see those cookies. So, so that kind of personalization has already tightened up. Um, but there are lots of other ways that browsers try to identify you and share information about you. And uh, I think Holly's main point is, the internet is kind of cracking down on all of those ways. So there's a thing called um, browser fingerprinting. And essentially, you know, I can uh, ask the browser for thousands of settings that you have set in your unique browser and your combination of settings for all those settings kind of, you know, equals a unique fingerprint that's going to be different than almost any other user on the internet. Um, And so by, uh, asking your browser all those questions, I can create a unique fingerprint for you to identify you uniquely, Scott, even if you delete all your cookies. And so there's a, you know, a fair amount of advertising-based um, personalization on the web that leverages these fingerprinting technologies. And increasingly, uh, the browser is not letting you ask it all those questions because they realize that it was being exploited for, for privacy reasons. Um, and by default... Uh, the browser isn't storing cookies at all or um, is much more restrictive in its privacy policies than than uh, they used to be. And so there are a lot of us that feel like um, a lot of the ways that a marketer would leverage third-party data to improve uh, their ability to market to you when you're on a particular website um, are all things that for a variety of privacy reasons are going away and are going to be more restricted, right? And so, um, you know, today when you go visit a website, you visit Walmart, Walmart knows everything that you've told Walmart about it, but Walmart can also go to Axiom and Epsilon and all these third parties and buy a bunch of extra data about you that they could potentially use to market to you. Um, and, there, you know, there's probably a, like, nearer than further future um, when marketers aren't going to be allowed to apply any of that third-party data to you. So they're only going to be allowed to use data about you that you have explicitly provided to them and uh, and that they have disclosed they're collecting and what they're doing with. And so uh, it does change uh, a bunch of marketing tactics. It does change uh, the the palette of personalization options that you have available. But frankly, like I would argue uh, that we are doing an extraordinarily crappy job of personalizing experiences to all the data that we have access today. Um, And so the fact that some of that data might be less accessible to us as marketers in the future, like, like, uh, you know, do a great job with all the data you have before you're crying about not having access to more data. So I, I feel like there's a huge opportunity to dramatically improve personalization, um, you know, even with just first-party data. And so I personally don't view it as a, a disaster um, that the sort of wild west of third-party data is is likely going to go away. Cool. And uh, I think we're getting tight on time, so we'll probably maybe do the short version of these. Um, this next question comes from Jeff Vogel. I saw Jason's question to Toby about performance and PWAs. Do you see them actually sticking? I know they are hot right now, but how many PWAs do either of you have on your phone? 
of those besides Amazon, how many do you use? Seems like something that works for the Amazons and Nordstrom's of the world, but do you see it as a mid-market reality? Oh, Jeff, it's so cruel. Uh, Scott just goes uh, short answers and then gives me a, a juicy P- PWA question. Um, <laughs> Take see, all the time you want. Uh, Scott, it's our Scott. podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I appreciate that, Scott. So, uh, so first of all, uh, the uh, the question he's referencing is um, the founder and CEO of Shopify did a kind of ask me anything on Twitter. Uh, that's Toby. And uh, I took the liberty of asking him a question about, you know, if there are any plans to dramatically improve page performance on uh, Shopify sites and specifically if Shopify was going to move to something like progressive web apps. Um, and Toby was nice enough to give a video response to my question. And he, he said, we're absolutely, uh, doing major, uh, evolutions of our performance right now. So stay tuned for, you know, big announcements about us, uh, optimizing our performance, which candidly is a problem with Shopify. It's not a particularly fast performing, um, e-commerce experience at the moment. Uh, so glad to hear that Toby is committed to fixing that. And I floated PWAs as one of the primary ways you would do that. And Toby didn't agree with me. Like, so he's like, oh, we support PWAs, but that's really not the best way to get performance. Um, so this requires like a slightly deeper dive. Jeff, I suspect the way you're thinking about PWAs is exactly backwards, right? So PWA stands for Progressive Web App, and it has this unfortunate word in it, app. And so when most people hear that, they go, oh, PWAs are a replacement for native apps. And uh, what you would do is you'd go to a website that's a PWA and you'd click save on my homepage. And now you'd have an icon on your phone that you could click anytime you wanted to launch this PWA. And, you know, he he's referencing that, gosh, like aren't only really big companies going to be able to convince people to save the PWAs to their homepage. Um, and here's the funny thing. What a PWA really is, is it's a best practice way to build a mobile website and you never have to store it on your homepage. It simply means if starbucks.com is built as a PWA, when you go to starbucks.com from your mobile phone, you're going to get a highly mobile optimized experience. That's likely to load much faster, be perceived as loading faster and support the very latest, um, mobile capabilities in your browser so it's using your browser to deliver a great mobile experience Uh, native apps aren't indexed by google so if you do a search on google you're not going to get pointers to the the interior content inside of a native app but a progressive web app is a website so it all of its content is indexed on google you can get a result on google click on that result and it'll take you right to that part of the progressive web app it just so happens that as an optional feature of progressive web apps if it's an app if it's a website you use a lot you can save it to your desktop and uh, or to your phone home screen um, and then there will be an icon that you can use to launch it but you're really just launching that brand's website and so i actually think pwa's most benefits the not amazons of the world amazon is about the only retailer that successfully has gotten 50 million consumers to download and install their app. Like almost no other retailer can get a native app installed on a lot of uh, devices. Amazon can. So if you're not Amazon and you want a rich mobile experience, a PWA is the way to go right now. So uh, I, at the moment, disagree with Toby. I think uh, PWAs are much uh, more important for mobile performance than apparently Toby believes they are. Um, Time will tell. Uh, there are a bunch of, of retailers that have launched PWAs and are reporting dramatically better performance and therefore business metrics as a result. Um, the example I use a lot is in the U.S., Starbucks has a mobile app. It's super successful. Um, but as they've expanded all these other countries, they didn't rewrite that mobile app. They built a PWA. So in China, the way you would do uh, mobile order and pay, the way you would do Starbucks pay is through a PWA website that Starbucks built. And they have built uh, a, a PWA version of their website in the U.S. now, and you can try it. And it basically, in a mobile web browser, gives you all the functionality that previously you you would have needed an app to give. So I think it's a really good experience. 
you don't see tons and tons of deployments right now because they're frankly really hard to build. And so they're expensive to build. Um, and a ton of retailers just spent a bunch of money building, building a responsive design website. And so the last thing they want is Jason Goldberg to fly in and go, your responsive website sucks. You should build a really expensive PWA to replace it. Right. And so like, frankly, they're just a lot of retailers that aren't in cycle on making that kind of investment right now. But almost every retailer that is having to make a new investment in their mobile experiences um, is adopting PWA. And the first uh, crop of those that did are getting great performance. So um, I'm actually curious to have a Toby's a super smart guy. Uh, I'm you know uh, curious to have a longer conversation with him than you can have on Twitter to understand why he's not as bullish. Um, but my uh sort of skeptical suspicion is uh Shopify just isn't particularly well architected to um replace the web store model with a PWA web store um and you know they built their own uh paradigm they they have this development language called liquid and Toby obviously loves the stuff that he built so he believes the fastest way to get a mobile website is a better implementation in liquid um and they support PWAs as kind of a bolt-on, but not really as a coordinative technology. And so I, I suspect part of Toby's uh, hesitation is that his architecture just doesn't support it as well. But uh, hopefully I'll get the chance to have a deeper dive with him and, and we'll find out. Cool. That's a good tie-in to this final listener question. This comes from Carrie, and I'm not going to say Carrie's last name because I won't say it right. So we'll call it Carrie K. Any new information regarding what Adobe is doing with the Magento platform and kind of a, it's a two-parter uh, here as we're trying to go fast. <laughs> and then uh, this is one you can do really fast. <laughs> What's your brief take on the current status of all of the e-commerce platforms? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that it's a better time than you might imagine because uh, unlike Shopify, um, Magento is kind of all in on progressive web apps. So uh like here, here's kind of my Reader's Digest on the on uh, Adobe and Magento first, and then the overall landscape later. Um, so Magento is a super popular e-commerce platform. It's been deployed millions of times. It's you know most people that deployed it didn't pay for it, and it's a you know open source on-prem solution. And that was called Magento 1.0. So there's a ton of sites out there that are still running Magento 1.0. There's a you know even more sites that installed Magento 1.0 at one point and then just kind of abandoned their business, right? So it's been a super popular platform for a long time. In the last three or four years, if you were a small business that wanted to launch an e-commerce site, you were way less likely to pick Magento, which is hard to install and host and all these things, and way more likely to pick Shopify. So Shopify has gained way more traction. Uh, well, I would argue Magento has lost a lot of traction with small businesses. But while that was happening... Magento didn't stand still. They built Magento 2.0, which was a much more modern architecture for an e-commerce platform. It was better in a lot of ways and only one piece of bad news. Uh, Magento got very few people to use Magento 2 and very few of the, the, the Magento 1 sites have migrated to Magento 2. Um, but Magento 2 is better in most ways. And today, Magento 2... Um, is one of the platforms that has the best native support for progressive web apps. So um, while they don't have, like Magento is kind of a tale of two cities. They have a long in the tooth old e-commerce platform um, that that has a lot of flaws, but has a huge install and loyal install base. And they have a new platform, which is much better, which supports uh, much more modern standards and better security. Um, and they don't have a lot of traction with it yet. And then, you know, when they found them in that circumstance, they got bought by Adobe, um, which, you know, has a, a huge investment in content management, this platform called uh, Adobe Experience Manager, or AEM. Um, and AEM's commerce strategy was to partner with e-commerce platforms. So, you know, what Adobe would say is... Uh, run AEM and IBM WebSphere or run AEM and SAP Hybris together. And we have these design patterns that let you run these two super, you know, expensive, complicated pieces of software together. So at the moment, 
I would say Adobe has not merged those two strategies. Like they, now that they own Magento, they, they have a strategy that says, hey, run AEM and Magento together. Like we used to talk about running Hybris or SAP. Um, and like, I don't think they've gotten a lot of traction on that. Like it, it frankly doesn't fit because Magento is cheap and, and AEM is expensive. So there's not like a huge amount of overlap of someone that wants those two platforms. Um, and then separately, they have this pure Magento solution, which is, hey, you don't need a content management solution. Adopt our Magento to, um, you know, embrace uh, progressive web apps and embrace the future. And it's a really great solution. So uh, what we're all waiting for is Adobe to kind of reconcile those two strategies and say, like, hey, how does AEM fit into the Magento 2 PWA world? AEM is not very good at PWAs. Uh, but you know when Magento is selling their vision of the future, they're they're talking heavily about PWAs. So they're in a little bit of an awkward place right now, and we're all waiting to see how they they reconcile those those two paths. There's there's a number of ways they could do it, and frankly, Adobe's acquired a lot of other technologies in the past, and ultimately been able to do a pretty good job of weaving them together. Okay. And then, uh, so the second part of that question was some of the other platforms you've, you've spent a fair amount of time on Shopify and Magento, uh, maybe throw, let's throw a little big commerce in there and then walk up to Salesforce, Oracle, SAP's kind of platforms. Um, yeah. So I, a, my one sentence answer is the state of, um, e-commerce, uh, platforms right now is, convoluted right um so the you know the the entry-level small business platforms of choice magento and shopify and as i've already mentioned shopify phenomenally gaining traction um and very low low risk easy implementation a lot of things going for it magento uh 1.0 open source uh not so much not gaining a lot of new users um one step up from that, there are, there are platforms that are you know meant to be like slightly more enterprise friendly, like you mentioned, Big Commerce, um, and I would call I would say Big Commerce has kind of stayed flat, um, and Shopify has kind of successfully moved into Big Commerce's space, so they have a new flavor of or it's not that new now, but a newer flavor of Shopify called Shopify Plus, which kind of targets directly the big commerces of the world, which were maybe like one step up market from, from Shopify. Big commerce is going to support more things like B2B workflows and things that, that Shopify probably doesn't have yet. Um, there are a bunch of newer platforms at the next step up that, uh, don't have very big installed bases, but there are all these platforms like, um, Mozu and, uh, um, commerce tools and Elastapath and, uh, you know, a whole set of platforms that each have some pros and cons, but just don't have a huge installed base. Uh, and then you get up to the, what, what was the big four, which is the, the platforms most likely to be used by my clients and be used by like big enterprise clients. It was Demandware, which is now Salesforce Commerce Cloud, which is doing really well, has a lot of traction and, you know, they're frankly doing a really good job of evolving the platform. Um, and then there are these three on-prem, so, uh, and that, that platform is cloud hosted platform. Um, then there's three on-prem platforms that were really big amongst enterprises. There was IBM Webster Commerce, which IBM actually sold and, you know, now, um, uh, is a little bit of forked platform. Uh, there's Oracle ATG and there's SAP Hybris. And I would argue that all three of those platforms have wildly lost steam, as uh, users have seen how expensive and high risk they are to install and how long the installation takes and how much of that experience you get out of these smaller, cheaper platforms for a fraction of the price. So like SAP Hybris has a bunch of features that are not in Shopify Plus, but once you've paid $10,000 for a year of Shopify Plus, uh, it's really hard to spend millions of dollars and wait uh, nine months or 12 months for an implementation of of SAP Hybris. So I would like say at the moment, the enterprise platforms are really kind of tanking. Uh, it remains to be seen what what will replace them. Uh, Demandware has, you know, or Salesforce Commerce Cloud has done by far the best of those enterprise solutions. And the, 
the small business guys are growing up with their clients. And so, you know, the, the Shopify's in the world have, have many more enterprise clients now that some of those originally small businesses like Warby Parker, you know, have, have gotten bigger on that platform. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd argue there's a bunch of new technologies that all the IT guys like that are uh, microservice based and all, all of these new frameworks. And it, it seems like that's what all the customers want. But like no one platform has kind of won the majority of users on that platform. So at the moment, it's a it's a very fragmented market and it's it's difficult to pick a winner. So it's, to be honest, not the best time in the world to pick a new platform if you don't have to. Yeah, some of the API-based ones call themselves headless, which I think is bad, bad marketing, unless it's Halloween. Yes, and for and most of um, like there's not perfect overlap, but most of the headless systems or API-based systems are uh, what we would call microservice-based systems. There are ways to be headless without microservices, but that's getting into nuances that we probably don't need to get into on this show. Um, Can you be headless without microservices, but still do PWAs <laughs> without third-party cookies and predictive shipping? Uh, I was going to say yes till you threw in predictive shipping. <laughs> cool. It started to sound like a little word salad, which means it's probably time to land the plane here. Yeah. Um, if I've totally confused anyone and you want to ask any follow-up questions, feel free to hit us up on Twitter or our Facebook page. Um, you know, if, if we added value on the show, we sure would love it. If you jump on iTunes and give us that five-star review, uh, we're, we're one of the best reviewed e-commerce podcasts on the web. And frankly, we'd like to keep that status and we need your help to do it. Thanks everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of, uh, industry news and listener questions until next time. Happy e-commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 